I'm certainly thankful uh, and excited to be here this morning. Um, it's certainly a privilege anytime I have the privilege of bringing forth uh, God's Word, a teaching from God's Word. Um, I think about the Apostle Paul telling young Timothy uh, to give attention to the public reading of the Scriptures. He told him to diligently teach and exhort the Scriptures. And so the engine that drives biblical preaching is reading the text, explaining the text, and exhorting the text. So by God's grace, that's what I intend to do this morning. Um, And if I've learned anything through the years, whether it's working with the youth, whether it's uh, studying with my guys on on Friday morning, um, or I'm just engaged in a dialogue with someone, Whenever this book is open, I expect great things to happen. And so whether it's conformed hearts, changed minds, or pierced consciences, I want to pray to that end this morning. So let's pray as we begin. Father, we're truly thankful for your word. Uh, Your word is everything that we need for life and godliness. And I pray this morning that your spirit, uh, the true teacher, the real teacher, would uh, be at work in our hearts doing what you have sovereignly ordained to happen. So Lord, bless our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Who's ever heard the phrase, try walking a mile in my shoes? Or maybe you've said, how would you like it if that happened to you? Or maybe you said, how would you like it if you were that person? This is reversal language. Or maybe there's been a situation or an experience in your life where your role or your view has been reversed. Maybe you've been the child and now you're the parent. You've been the player and now you're the coach. Or you've been the student and now you're the teacher. So why do we use reversal language? Or why are these experiences so powerful in our lives? Well, one thing's for certain. The perspective is always different from the other side. And the contrast of the two settings or the two experiences, those contrasts rise to the surface. These reverse views can bring forth an altered mindset, an empathetic spirit, or a newfound appreciation for something. No matter how it impacts you, it's an extremely powerful teaching method And today, we're going to look at what I consider to be the most and the greatest reversal narrative ever told, the rich man and Lazarus. It's told by our Lord Jesus, who without doubt is the most skilled teacher to have ever walked the earth. Dr. R.C. Sproul said of this parable, this is a terrifying parable. It's a parable of severe contrast and reversal. So let's read our text today in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, 
he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What an amazing parable we have before us today. Did you hear the sharp contrasts? The contrast between the rich man and the beggar? The contrast between heaven and hell? The contrast between the authority of God's word and experientialism? There were sharp divides here in order to strengthen the power of Jesus' teaching. And so before we go verse by verse through the text, let's do a little background work. And first, I just want to clarify that this is not a passage on wealth or stewarding your wealth. This is not a passage on poverty or how to care for the poor. Yes, we can draw some inferences on both of these things, but we have large portions of Scripture that teach explicitly what to do with your money or how to be a faithful steward of your wealth. There are also large portions of Scripture that teach us how we ought to care for the poor and brokenhearted. Even more flawed than that thinking are those quick and thoughtless readers who come to the conclusion that if you're rich, you're going to hell, and if you're poor, you're going to heaven. How wrong those interpretations are. And equally wrong and massively relevant to our text today is the Jews in Jesus' day. They believed strongly that being wealthy was a clear indication that you were favored by God, and surely that favor would continue to the afterlife. The example of that that I like to go to is the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus, after an encounter with Jesus, he walks away sad, realizing that his heart is with his money and not in belief in the scriptures. But what's more perplexing is all the people around the discussion were amazed that this man was not favored by God. His disciples even said, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And so this thought was prevalent in this time. And conversely, if someone was poor and afflicted, they were considered outcasts, not worthy, cursed of God. And that, too, would follow them to the afterlife. So what is the parable teaching? What is Jesus doing here? Well, certainly he's contrasting, and we know he's reversing their order of thinking. 
John Gill, in his incredible work on this passage, says this, The design of the parable is to expose the wickedness and unbelief of the Jews, particularly the Pharisees, and to show their danger and misery for their contempt and rejection of the Messiah. See, the Pharisees, who were covetous, they ridiculed Jesus' teaching. Earlier in this same passage, if you go back to verse 14, they scoffed at him as he taught. Jesus said this of them in that passage. He said, you are high in the esteem of men, but you are an abomination to God. Jesus is driving his teaching right at the hearts of the unbelieving Jews. He is sculpting a character, the rich man, that represented them to a T. A character who plainly shows who the Pharisees were. Exposing their deceitfulness, their hypocrisy, their greed, their covetousness, their cruelty, and their uncompassionate hearts, which were hidden from the eyes of men. And so therefore, Jesus pulls no punches. As Vic read earlier in Matthew 23, Jesus sees their wicked hearts, their self-righteous motives, and he condemns them. Jesus not only knew their hearts, he put their hearts on display for all to see. You see, the Pharisees loved the acceptance of man. They always presented themselves in a way that made people commend them. They loved power and control, and money was so quick to offer control and authority over people. They loved themselves. They always made sure they were accounted for before others. But lest we think this teaching is only for them, think again. These sins are very common in our contemporary culture. Students in an MBA program uh, at Hartford University were asked to create a strategic plan under the topic, what do I hope to achieve in life after graduation? The top three answers were wealth, notoriety, and status. No one said anything at all about service to others. And although this may not surprise you uh, regarding contemporary culture, I assure you this morning that the disciples were in the crowd, other followers of Christ were in the crowd, and I can assure you we are in Jesus' audience this morning. Because leave no doubt that our hearts are so quick to seek after an improper love of money, an improper love of status and reputation, a common dependency on our own self-righteousness, and yes, a desire to see miracles, a desire to see miracles and signs over the authority of Scripture. And so, as we move into the parable this morning, Jesus is painting a vivid picture of two characters' lives, two destinations, and two desperate pleas that never get answered in hell. So that will serve as our outline this morning, two lives, two destinations, and two pleas. Let's start by looking at two lives. As we look back in the scriptures, verse 19 says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously, Every day, 
and at his gates was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. The contrast between these two men could hardly have been greater. One was clearly a have, and the other was clearly a have not. The rich man went around clothed in royal purple. He lived in some sort of gated palace and surely displayed himself to be some sort of king. He ate sumptuously with the finest foods every day, not once in a while, but every day. In short, this man was a lover of money, but even more than money, it's the way he used his money to gratify his sinful pleasures. In his life, he had everything going for him. Conversely, the poor beggar seemed to have everything against him. He had some sort of incurable disease that left his body covered in sores, and he wasn't even able to bring himself to the gates of the rich man. The only way he could get around from place to place was if someone carried him to get him there. He was hungry, so desperately hungry that he longed and begged for the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Day after day, the rich man passed in and out of the gates. Lazarus hoped that he could get some relief, but the only comfort he ever received was from a pack of dogs. And these dogs weren't man's best friend dogs. These were scavenger dogs who licked his open sores. Even these dogs were kinder to Lazarus than the rich man was. The contrast of these two men and their lives could not have been greater. John Gill added this regarding the rich man. He said, this famous man, a man of note, just as the Jews and especially the Pharisees thought themselves to be. They loved, the Pharisees loved to go in long robes, which figuratively expressed their fine outward show of holiness They coveted the chief places in the synagogues and at feasts. And they loved salutations and greetings in the marketplace. And they loved to be called of men, rabbi and master. And even though they had the oracles of God, they had the scriptures, they had worship, they had order, they had service, they were not truly rich in grace, nor in works which they so much boasted in. They imagined themselves to be perfect and they stood in need of nothing. No, not repentance and especially not of Christ or anything from him. So beware this morning. If your heart knows no spiritual sorrow, knows no sense of sin, nor does it truly delight in the law of God. This is the heart of the rich man. And as John Gill pointed out, it's the heart of the Pharisees and the Jews. Are you at ease with your life? Are you rich towards yourself? As we examine our hearts throughout this text, I think we might find that we're more like the rich man than we think. Or are you a beggar in desperate need and hungry for God's infinite mercy? Let's look now at the two destinations Verse 22 says, The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Death is the great equalizer. As wealthy as a rich man was, he was just as likely to die as Lazarus was. No matter how much money we have, it will never completely save our lives. Worldly wealth cannot prevent our own inevitable demise. The only thing that matters is our relationship to God through union with Christ. From an earthly perspective, Lazarus' death was an insignificant event, especially in comparison to the rich man. The rich man received a proper burial, as verse 22 says, and I'm sure it was an elaborate event. Yet nothing is even said of Lazarus' burial. He simply died of disease and starvation, and his body was cast aside. However, the moment the beggar died, he was immediately comforted by the fullness of angels and carried to the side of Abraham. What an amazing and vivid picture we have here of the mercy and tenderness of God. And then his name, Lazarus, fully, finally, and forever came true. Lazarus means God has helped. When there was no one else to help him, Lazarus was helped by the Almighty God. Everyone else on earth may have forgotten about this beggar, but oh, how he was remembered by God. St. Augustine observed this. Jesus, in telling this narrative, kept quiet about the rich man's name, yet he mentioned the name of the poor man. On earth, the rich man's name was thrown around, but God kept quiet about it. The beggar's name was lost in silence, and God spoke about it. In this case, the angels carried Lazarus to Abraham's side, also referred to as the bosom of Abraham, meaning heaven, a phrase that was well known by the Jews. It was not the fact of his poverty that saved him, as if earthly suffering merited any sort of eternal reward. No, Lazarus was saved because he believed the scriptures and trusted in God. And although this is not stated explicitly in the passage, it's an obvious and necessary inference from the whole of scripture, from the destination we find him when he died. This beggar was a true child of Abraham, saved by grace through faith. When Lazarus died, the torment of his earthly troubles was over. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But how different it was for the rich man, whose suffering immediately set in. He found himself in utter misery, Jesus describes the rich man's distress in graphic, physical terms. He was burning in agony and in desperate, horrifying torment. In this place, he could see Lazarus being cared for and loved in the heavenly realms of glory. And what was his response? He cried out and began to beg. He began to beg and plead for himself. At this point in the passage, we've seen the characters' two lives and the contrast between them, and now we see the severe contrast between their two destinations. 
One man on earth lived in a palace of luxury while the other man died at the gates of that palace because of disease and starvation. But when they reached their destination after death, the situation was eternally reversed. One receiving God's eternal wrath and the other receiving his infinite mercy. As we read this, do you sense the urgency of the gospel? I mean, we all know people in our lives who do not believe the scriptures, who do not know the gospels. When we read this, there should be a sense of urgency that comes about. Let's look at, finally, the two pleas that the rich man makes. In verse 24, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Phil Riken, in his commentary on Luke, says this, This request, in all of its irony, summarizes the whole situation. The rich man, who knows who Abraham is, even calls him father the way the Pharisees did. He also knows who Lazarus is. On earth, he tried to ignore Lazarus, stepping past him every day, pretending not to notice his needs. And most ironically of all, he is now the person in need, begging, of the ki- begging for the kind of help he never gave anyone. Now he, in turn, is the beggar and yearns for relief from the inexpressible tortures he finds himself. And how reasonable this request must seem. Notice, even at this point, he's still so lost. Not death and not hell cure his unbelief. His understanding is flawed and his unbelief in the scriptures comes forth as he speaks. First, he doesn't cry out to God. Who does he cry out to? Cries out to Father Abraham. Why? Because he's trusting in his Jewishness to save him. And now, nor his Jewishness, nor his money can save him. His improper understanding continues. Even when he cries out for mercy, he cries out for temporal, fleshly relief. He is still completely unaware of his greatest need. You see, the scriptures are clear about our sinful condition as we live here on earth. The scriptures are clear about our need for mercy and grace from God on our behalf. And it's at this point that Abraham explains the great reversal to the rich man. In verse 25, he says, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Abraham's response not only denies his request for temporary help, but his response also brings about a gravitating reality. That this was his final destiny. There were no second chances. There is no appeals process. It's too late. 
No, this isn't a teaching lesson or a temporary holding cell. No, people can't pray you out of this place. And no one can intervene for you now. And they certainly can't buy you out with money. This sudden reality that the rich man finds himself in is more horrible and miserable than anyone could ever contemplate. And now that he has discovered that he is beyond hope and rescue, he begs for his second plea in verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. Suddenly, the rich man is interested in his version of missionary work. He's desperate for an evangelist from heaven to go and warn them of this horrible place. And once again, his request seems reasonable, yet this plea too is denied. Or not so much denied as it's said to be unnecessary. Abraham said in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, the rich man's brothers already have the means of salvation. They had Moses and the prophets. They had the Holy Scriptures accessible to them. And surely their family must have lived in a community where they could go to a local synagogue and hear the Old Testament Scriptures. If only they believed what they said, it would be enough to save them. They would know that they needed blood to atone for sins. They would know that Jesus, the Messiah, was the Christ. See, the word is enough to show us our sin, to guide us in the way of salvation, to teach us how to give glory to God. But notice the rich man's objection. More unbelief, more misunderstanding, more incorrect propositions. Look at what he asked for. He doesn't ask for faith. He doesn't ask for understanding. He wants a supernatural sign. He wants some sort of miracle. He says in verse 30, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. See, the Pharisees, they longed for signs and wonders. They wanted miracles. Earlier in Luke and in other gospel accounts, It says that the Pharisees always came and began to argue with Jesus and they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And in one passage it says that Jesus deeply, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? The rich man knew his brothers well enough to know that they didn't believe the Bible any more than he did. But if a ghost from heaven went and preached to them, surely they would take notice. But see, true faith and repentance is not man's will, but it's a gift of God's grace. These brothers could not repent of their own accord because in a real way, like their brother, their eyes too were shut, their ears were stopped, and their hearts were hardened. Think about it. Christ came to them. He came to the Jews in person. He preached with incredible power and authority, as was prophesied. He confirmed his doctrine with miracles, and they received him not. 
They did not repent, nor did they believe when he rose from the dead. Listen to Abraham in verse 31. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone goes to them, I'm sorry, if someone should rise from the dead. So here we're given deep insight into the heart of unbelief, an insight that is so powerful and profound. If you do not believe God's word, Firstly, that it's the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. But if you do not believe what God has said in his word, then you'll never believe anything God does either. And you will truly never believe in Jesus Christ. Phil Riken says this in his commentary. He says, see the logic, right? We love logic, right? So see the logic of what Abraham is saying. If people aren't willing to listen to the scriptures, then even the most spectacular miracle will not persuade them about the truth of Jesus Christ. There is ample proof of this in the Gospels. Consider what happened when Jesus raised the other Lazarus from the dead. Rather than believing in Jesus, the religious leaders began to plot. To kill him. The same thing happened when Jesus himself rose from the dead. Instead of believing in his resurrection, the men who, who killed him tried to cover the whole thing up. Not even the resurrection is enough to convince people to trust in Jesus Christ if they do not believe what God has said in his word. Luther added this the dead may deceive us but the scriptures cannot. Do you remember the two men, the two followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection? Were they happy, joyfully skipping along the road that day after Jesus should have rose from the dead on the third day? They were sad. They were confused. They were afraid. And then this man came up behind them on the road. And that man was Jesus. And the Bible says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So, again, notice, he doesn't say to them when he comes up behind me, look, it's me. And he doesn't say, why do you not believe the women who have told you that I have risen? He doesn't say, why do you not believe the angels who bore witness to my resurrection? He simply directs them away from himself to the word of Scripture. And watch what happened. Watch what happened when you go to the word of Scripture. Jesus explained the Scriptures to them, and not only did their hearts ignite, the Bible says their hearts burned within them. I mean, that's good news this morning, because we don't have to perform miracles to persuade people. We give them what? The word. It's powerful. In closing, I want to parallel this text quickly with another text that's found two chapters forward in Luke, in Luke 18. It's one that we're pretty familiar with. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, on one hand, Jesus says this about that in the parable. He says, the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, 
on the other hand, who, how were tax collectors perceived in their culture? Pretty upstanding guys? No, right? The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And watch what Jesus says at the end of this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collectors. He says, I tell you that this man went home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. See, in both of these parables, whether it's the rich man or the Pharisee or Lazarus or the tax collector, we get a picture of salvation and the nature of salvation. With the rich man and Pharisee, we see boasting in self, displaying of works, trust in notoriety, and even trust in money, and ultimately pride leading to hell. But here, regardless of the notoriety, regardless of the status before men, we see men who are in need of one thing, the mercy of God. And watch what they do. What do they do? What did Lazarus do to get mercy? He simply what? He received it. He received mercy. See, are we resting this morning? Are we standing in the grace of God? Who do you relate with this morning? Do you relate with the rich man and the Pharisee? Do you relate with the tax collector and Lazarus? Whose work are you trusting in this morning? You see, Jesus did everything for us. See, Jesus accomplished the law. He lived the life that we could not live. He achieved and accomplished 33 years of perfect obedience under the law. He achieved that for you. He lived the life you could not live. Then he died the death that we deserved. He died the death we should have died, that atoning death that absorbed the wrath of God for his people. And he did that for us. So what it means to stand in grace What it means to trust in Jesus is that is what you're trusting in to stand before a holy and perfect God. Not boasting in self, not your church attendance, and certainly not your money. So don't end up in that terrible place where prayers are not heard, requests are not answered, but cross now into glory. As Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not pass into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's close in prayer. Father, your word is enough. Your word is everything we need for life and godliness. And just when we isolate the word, Lord, you actually give us the helper. You give us the Holy Spirit who enables and quickens our minds to believe. We need only ask for your help. And you will, as Jesus did on the road to Emmaus, you will open our eyes to the truth of Scripture. And our hearts will therefore burn for the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that you have provided to us. 
in Christ's death on the cross, our debt is truly paid. And thank you for the resurrection according to the scriptures. For death has lost its sting and eternal life is ours in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.